0: The uh, pirate parrot got visibly angry and kind of threatened me. I've got about 12 more hours here, so wish me
1: luck. Don't worry. I'm calling you an Uber self-driving car right now. (laughs) That's not not going to help me. Yeah, that's not
0: getting me to the airport. No way.
1: Hi, everybody, and welcome to the GeekWire podcast. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. And I'm GeekWire co-founder John Cook. Well, this is a whole other topic, but I just realized we have to acknowledge that one of our listeners says, hey, you guys don't need to say who you are or what you do. Well, you need to say who you are, but you don't need to say your title because everybody knows you. And I got to say, I
0: don't think that's true. I don't think it's true. And I know enough people confuse the two of us that we (laughs) probably need to identify ourselves.
1: Exactly. We at least need to say our names. At any rate, we are here in Pittsburgh at the Cascadia Connect Robotics Automation and AI Conference. John, myself, and Taylor Soper and Kurt Schlosser on our team have been here for the past few days you've been here for
0: (laughs) gosh what is it now week and a half at least
1: that's right we've been deep immersion in pittsburgh (laughs) we've been looking at the field of robotics and automation and ai in conjunction with this conference but also leading up to it i've seen some cool stuff including an amazon robotic sortation center this week and we just got done with the conference here in downtown pittsburgh Of course, Cascadia Capital is underwriting our independent coverage here, as folks who've been following along will know. So, John, this has been, for us, an interesting immersion back into Pittsburgh. We were here for a month in 2018. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. But first, there were some comments that Michael Butler, the chairman and CEO of Cascadia Capital, made at the outset of the conference that I thought were really interesting in terms of the comparison between Seattle and Pittsburgh.
2: We see with robotics automation and AI what we saw with the Internet 2.0. In Pittsburgh, we see what we saw in Seattle. Seattle in 2000 was much like Pittsburgh, a wonderful city, great people, very collaborative, a lot of smart technology folks, but the critical mass hadn't been built. It didn't exist and it took several years for that, that ecosystem to build. And we were part of building it and we served as a bridge between the Northwest and the rest of the country and we see the same things here. You know, I've got enough gray hair that uh, I have pretty good pattern recognition skills. And this is Seattle in 2006. And I think the robotics automation and AI sector in general is gonna be bigger than Internet 3.0.
1: So that is Michael Butler, the chairman and CEO of Cascadia Capital, talking at the Cascadia Connect Robotics
0: Automation and AI Conference here in Pittsburgh. What do you think of what he said, John? I think he's on to something. I think there are really interesting connections. And this is why we've come back here a second time to Pittsburgh, because we love it here. There's a real energy. There's a community spirit. It does remind me of when I started to cover the community in the Seattle area in the late 90s and to really watch that industry and the business and the community come together. And you can feel that when you're in Pittsburgh. And it's fun for us as reporters to kind of take us back 10, 15, 20 years and how Seattle was operating and how Seattle was perceived. I mean, Seattle for the most part was forgotten. It was an underdog. It was an underdog. It wasn't really talked that much about. It well, wasn't on the global stage the way it is today. And I would say it's on the global stage today because of a Microsoft and Amazon and Expedia and T-Mobile and a great startup ecosystem. But – Pittsburgh is also kind of this underdog, and it's this up-and-comer. And if you do believe what Michael was saying there, that robotics and AI are the future, you do have to think that Pittsburgh is going to have a very, very strong role to play in how that industry develops. Seattle was definitely on the national stage, but certainly
1: the tech industry itself, if you would have asked folks, they probably would have said Microsoft was in Silicon Valley at the time, just like they say about Amazon now. And just to put a couple numbers to it, why don't you quiz me? I always oh, quiz I, you I, on the I podcast. So. Absolutely. So And this is your domain yes. too. So in the world of venture capital, in the first quarter of this year, Seattle, as a benchmark here, had 118 deals worth $1. $1.6 billion in terms of startup funding. Okay. So this is according to PitchBook and the National Venture Capital Association.
0: Yeah. 118 and 1. $1.6 So what does Pittsburgh have? Exactly. Okay. I would guess that Pittsburgh had 24 deals that two hundred and twenty million. Very close on both eighteen deals
1: and two hundred and thirty four point seven million. That's bad. That's the, not a bad the, guess. The Pittsburgh Business Times says they missed a couple, so technically it's twenty deals and more than three hundred million dollars. I love that the reporters pointed out that they missed a couple
0: deals. Oh well, that's good reporting. <laughs> you go back and you write these stories and you say here are all the deals and then people come out of the word work. Hey you missed one, yes, right? So ex-
1: exactly by the way, just for big context, the Bay Area, San Francisco and Silicon Valley, seven hundred and eighty seven deals at twenty Eight point two billion billion versus $1.6 billion
0: again. So not everybody has left the Bay Area. <laughs> not yet. And, <laughs> and moved deals. to Pittsburgh or Seattle. Exactly. So that's, again, for the first quarter of this year. Right. Well, the one thing that Michael said is that Pittsburgh reminds him of Seattle in like 2006 or so. It's uh, kind of emerging, bubbling up industry. And I, I think the one difference, you know, and Todd, now we've spent some time here in Pittsburgh, is that Pittsburgh's anchor tenant, if you will, is not a corporation or industry. It's a university. It's Carnegie Mellon. Right. It's CMU. And there you are the leaders in robotics and AI. And so it's a little bit of a different scene here that so much revolves around CMU versus, I would say, back in the 90s and into the early 2000s, it really was in Seattle, a Microsoft town. And Microsoft was a dominant tech behemoth. And a lot of that talent flowed out of Microsoft. And so that's one big differentiator here. You don't have a a Microsoft-like company in Pittsburgh, and I think that's a weakness. Right.
1: And I will say Pittsburghers would point out Pitt is obviously very important too, although not as much in the world of robotics, the University of Pittsburgh, also the importance of the healthcare industry here as well in terms of the overall Innovation ecosystem is clearly part of this. But to your point, John, yes. If you were to pick one, it would be CMU. It would be the Robotics Institute, whose leader, Matthew Johnson Robertson, was our guest on last week's show. And that certainly is very different from a corporation. You can see where Microsoft had this impact in a huge way because people were ready to take all those stock options, all that wealth that they got in that era that you were referencing, and go do something on their own. In the realm of software and enterprise technology, ultimately, which really defined the Seattle market, but I would argue, and I think you're saying this as well, that it was more of an accelerant. Microsoft was more of an accelerant in that way. Just to give you some context, there are about 100 robotics commercial operations in Pittsburgh today. So it's quite a bit, but certainly it's not anywhere in the realm of the startup activity that you saw in Seattle as people left Microsoft and started their own companies.
0: Yeah. Todd, you had an interesting comment in last week's podcast where you were talking about the combination of kind of the hardware, the robotics side of this with the software where Seattle has a lot of expertise, the AI component, the software component matching with the robotics and hardware right. side. The, bo- the body and the mind. The body and the mind. And like, where do you see that playing out after having listened to several of the sessions here? Do you see those worlds coming together more clearly that folks are now working in unison to try to actually build products where you do have that software and hardware component together to get true robotics and AI into working professions and industries? Yes, I
1: do see that starting to happen based on what we saw here today. And I think the common thread is artificial intelligence. You have it running in software, in big enterprise systems, and you also have it being a key component, clearly a fundamental component of robotics. And I think that is where the commonalities are between regions like Seattle that focus on software and those like Pittsburgh that focus on robotics. And to the extent that they can get on the same page, I think you'll see both the software and the robotics go faster. And that was really what I was trying to get out with that question for
0: Matthew Johnson-Robertson. Yeah, and I would say compared to four years ago when we were here in Pittsburgh, I do feel like the reality of robotics and AI is more within our grasp. And I know everything's further off than you think. But I think last time we were here... And we took the self-driving autonomous vehicle Uber ride around and Taylor Soper and I were in that car and it was like, this is not ready for prime time. You hit a pothole. I mean, we hit a pothole in the system basically when Haywire and the driver who, thank God, was in the in the seat was able to take control. But it just spoke to the fact to me at that time, I was really kind of. I didn't think – I didn't see the future coming as quickly as a lot of people were talking about, especially at that time. But I would say coming out of this conference, there's one thing that's sticking with me. I think the necessity in 2022 for automation and robotics is so front and center in everything we're encountering in today's news cycle. I mean, what are the big issues we're facing? Supply chain. Supply chain chain issues and labor labor shortage. shortage. And I must have heard those words – a dozen or more times during the, during the conference and the various panels, and I think that positioning will help sell the case of robotics and AI going forward. That this is a real problem that is now impacting people in pretty impactful ways. And so, you know, I think it's just going to be really interesting to see if the acceptance, because you know, the the main issue here before was everyone's like, oh, the AI and robotics is coming for our jobs, and it's going to create all these problems. And I think now, boy, it sure seems like it's hard to make the argument that uh, robotics is going to take all these jobs away when we can't even fill some basic needs. Uh, So I think that's a big change from what I'm seeing um, and definitely heard that throughout the conference and a greater acceptance amongst employees and certainly employers about doing robotics and AI versus, oh, it's just a way to cost cut and remove People from the equation. I heard that over and over again. Definitely. I think the whole public perception of robotics and
1: automation is changing. And I think you're seeing some of the entrepreneurs and the engineers here feel emboldened by that. And it's taking away one of these clouds that was hanging over the industry just because of the long term implications for jobs. And the thing that you have always heard people in AI and automation and robotics say is. Hey, it's a net positive overall this is going to grow the economy and create more jobs overall. And it was always a little bit tough to swallow that. But now I think we can at least see that even if it does take some jobs away, some of the monotonous jobs or the dangerous jobs away, that's an okay thing because if you look at the unemployment rate right now, it's hard to argue that some robots wouldn't be a good thing.
0: Right. I heard it over and over again. You know, this idea. The dull, demeaning, dirty jobs, let's hand those to the robots and you up-level, up-skill, up the uh, workers who can go on to do more impactful work in an organization. And I, I think that's hopefully the case because otherwise there are going to be a lot of people out of work. History shows that that is typically what has occurred. If you, I mean, you look at the agricultural industry as an example. I mean, that certainly has occurred. One of the folks that was here at the conference
1: speaking was the president of TerraClear, which is a startup based in Washington State that basically has a rock picking robot that can pick rocks
0: out of fields. Which is yeah, Brent Fry, the the founder of the company, who's a six foot seven former football player, no longer and farmer, who you know who went on to uh, create Onyx and SmartSheet. Uh, you know, he no longer has to go out in the field and pick up the boulders himself and throw them into the back of the pickup. He's got his robot to do it now. That's right. And Trevor Thompson, the
1: president of TerraClear was here uh, representing the company in a really fascinating panel on
0: the future of agriculture and robotics. Yeah. Todd, you know, that's a s- story close to my heart starting on the ag beat back in Ohio. Did you start on the ag? Yeah, that was one of my areas. Uh, when I was a features reporter, really? I did a lot of ag reporting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: Very cool. Very cool. John, there was another commonality throughout much of what I heard over the past week and heard today at the conference, and that was Amazon. Let's talk about that coming up next.
2: Technology moves fast. I need to move faster. WGU's competency-based education puts me in control of how fast I
1: move through my IT degree program. I can accelerate my program by applying what I already know to my courses and focusing on the things I need to learn. And a respected accredited degree that propels your career in the it field learn more at wgu.edu backslash included welcome back it's todd bishop with john cook we are here in pittsburgh at the cascadia connect robotics automation and ai conference The main content just wrapped up. You can probably hear the din of the after party behind us. John, I'm keeping you from another beer. (laughs) That's all right. I'm happy to chat with you. All right. So Amazon was not here at the conference. They do not have a robotics presence from an engineering standpoint in Pittsburgh. They do have some machine learning and translation and some engineering folks here, about 200 down on the South Side, South Side Works, and I got to visit it. And I'm going to be writing a story about that for GeekWire. But they were a common thread in a lot of conversations to the point that you just realize that everywhere, not just in Seattle, and I think sometimes we get the perception that we talk about Amazon a lot because they're in our backyard. They're ever present in so many fields and particularly robotics. This is a place where they have Huge amounts of clout, not just in what they do, but in what they need from robotics suppliers. And that was the focus of a few comments on several different panels today. Yeah. So what stood out to you? So the big one first off was during a discussion of the supply chain. And at one point, the panelists were talking about automation and different types of coordination that needs to happen in warehouses. And well, listen to what Lance Vanderbrook, the CEO of IM Robotics, had to say about that.
0: I call it the Amazon effect. Amazon's pushing for two-hour delivery, four-hour delivery. So if you're a small to mid-sized company having to compete in that space, you want the best point solutions to reduce your cycle time, right? So they want high throughput. They want to hit those cutoff times. They, they need to compete with an Amazon, with a Shopify, you think about Shopify coming out and, and basically you know, communicating they're going to spend a billion dollars over the next two years to build up their fulfillment centers. They're trying to get to two-day delivery. So I, I think this, this idea about interoperability is critical. As an ecosystem, clients are going to demand, they're going to pick the, the best point solution for their, for their operation in order to give them a competitive advantage in the marketplace. I don't, I don't see that changing in the near future.
1: So you can hear how Amazon's efforts to push forward its own business to create value for Prime subscribers by having not only one and two-day delivery, but sometimes one and two-hour delivery, really changes things and starts to make others follow suit and ultimately could increase the broader adoption of robotics and automation and AI just
0: because everybody's trying to operate at Amazon speed. Yeah. I mean, and obviously that's tough to do. And Amazon has – a lot of expertise in this arena, in part through their acquisition of Kiva. I think you're going to see additional robotics investments, certainly by Amazon. I'm surprised they actually don't have a facility here yet. And maybe that's one of the stories we should. Engineering yeah, facility. Yeah, engineering facility that really s- focuses in on robotics. I am too. Uh, because it is such a key piece of the supply chain and logistics for Amazon that I would think that they would be – they'd at least have a presence here to some degree, but maybe that's a story we need to uncover while we're here. That would be a good (laughs) scoop. Uh, I did ask about it and... And no one knows.
1: Well, I got one of those kind of smiling, that's an interesting idea responses, you know? So it's, (laughs) we'll we'll see. I I think it's certainly something that would make a lot of sense given the robotics talent here. I think it would shake up the robotics market here if Amazon were to make a move like that.
0: Yeah. Was there anything else
1: that stood out yeah. From Amazon. Right. Yes. The other big one that really struck me was not here at the conference, but from one of the speakers at the conference, speaking with her last week in her office, Henny Admani, who is an associate professor in robotics at Carnegie Mellon. She specializes in human-computer interactions, particularly in the home, kitchen types of scenarios and and other things like that, where robots, for example, might come in and augment the capabilities of a caregiver in the home. And I couldn't help but ask her about Astro, which is Amazon's home robot that's been announced, not widely released. I totally
0: forgot about Astro.
1: I know. They, it's, it's very- <laughs> I really
0: did. I totally forgot about Astro. Amazon. Sorry. <laughs> does-
1: <laughs> Amazon does so much, it's easy to forget yeah. about things sometimes. This is that cute little robot with the kind of digital face that can make different expressions and roll around the house and answer questions like a mobile Alexa but it also is a security robot, effectively. That's one of the main ways Amazon is pitching this. So I asked Henny Admani at CMU what she thought of that, and this is what she said.
3: I think Astro comes as uh, a robot in a long line of commercial home robots, like Cheapo and Curry from Mayfield Robotics, um, that were trying to be a multi-purpose social companion Um, and I think that is a very hard market right now market role to fill if anybody can do it Amazon can do it because they have so much money and so many resources behind them but I think it's a mistake honestly to try to position a security robot as also this like cute companion that you can talk to that will play music for you and remind you about your events let robots be robots, right? Let it be a security robot if that's what you want, but then don't make it look like a dog <laughs> because people have expectations of what a right. pet is like, um, and they give it a dog name, right? They give it the name of the dog in um, from the Jetsons. Like, right. people now bring expectations about social interaction, even, at, even with pets, right? We have expectations around social interaction. So now is it a security robot or is it social interaction or is it supposed to be a screen for you to take video calls on, right? And it's not clear exactly what role that robot feels in your sort of family life and in your home. And I think that's going to kind of trip them up as they're trying to market it to people.
1: So this really struck me as a bit of a fire phone moment, John, oh, where wow. it feels like Amazon has a cool technology they've been working on and they've come up with these somewhat unique features that they think are cool. And I'm not so sure that everybody who buys one or who would otherwise
0: buy one is going to feel the same way. Okay. Maybe it's a version one and they're going to have to iterate on Astro. You know, maybe Astro 3.0 is going to be a little bit refined. Well, that would be the Microsoft model. I know that or, sometimes the
1: Amazon
0: model, Astro might be dead.
1: <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll see. I just thought it was really interesting. And in part, this speaks to just how hard robotics still are. And that was another key takeaway for me here this week. The people who are at the leading edge of this field are saying, hey, wait a second, keep it simple. Do one thing well. Don't try to be everything to everybody. And you know, the most successful home robot ever does one thing. Do you know what it does? Oh, it's the Roomba. It vacuums your floor. Yeah. And that's exactly the model that folks are saying they, right. that People who are making these kinds of consumer robots for the home should be thinking about mastering one application. We're not yet at the point where a true multi-use robot can
0: succeed at all of the different things that companies might yeah, want it and to do. I would argue that it's also going to take longer for robotics to penetrate the consumer market than it does the enterprise Especially with the supply chain and the labor issues, it just—I mean—the business case is just so front and center for so many organizations right now. Versus, you know, you know, getting the automated Astro in my home or the Roomba, I just like I don't think it's as compelling a story. And those are massive markets that you can bring a lot of uh, productivity or efficiency to if you get those new systems put in place. So, I think that's an area to watch. Which industries are going to go through? This transformation. Some of our reporting here, while we've been in Pittsburgh, is is looking at autonomous vehicles, but not the consumer vehicle, not you and you know the two of us getting into an autonomous vehicle. It's the trucking. You know Peterbilt, which is part of Paccar, a big heavy duty truck manufacturer. They have partnered with Aurora, which is one of the uh, autonomous vehicle companies based here in Pittsburgh on uh, new vehicles. And I think they're supposed to be hitting the road in 2023, 24. And so that's an interesting development. But I, I see that taking root as an example of an enterprise application versus a consumer application much sooner. And
1: of course, don't forget PACCAR based in Bellevue, Washington, right there in the Seattle area. All right. Once again, we are here at the Cascadia Connect Robotics Automation and AI Conference in Pittsburgh. We were last here in 2018 and we always have some adventures and some fun experiences. And occasionally, John, you get into some arguments when we're here in Pittsburgh. I I have some enemies here. So we'll talk about that coming up next. (laughs) Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop with John Cook. We're coming to you from the Cascadia Connect Robotics Automation and AI Conference here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And we were last year in 2018 for a project that we called Geekwire HQ2. I will not give you the entire history on Geekwire HQ2 because it is exhaustive. But uh, suffice it to say, we were here for a month covering the tech scene and we were at the Pittsburgh Penguins game. And you, for some reason that I can't remember anymore... Yeah, I don't think you were there, but uh, there
0: was an altercation. No, I was there. Were you there for this? When I was trying to... Get a picture with Iceberg? Yeah, Yeah. so Iceberg is the mascot of the penguins, and uh, I thought it would be fun to have a picture with, you know, in Mike Equire t-shirt with Iceberg. You know, I thought Iceberg would be welcoming to you know, this out of town technology technology news, news outlet, Uh, yes, (laughs) 40 something, 40 something, really (laughs) craving to be on camera with iceberg, but he, he kind of blew me off and left a really bad taste in my mouth. Right.
1: And so this has been a running joke over the years. And so this past week we were at a Pittsburgh pirates game at PNC park, beautiful park, very similar to T-Mobile park in Seattle, although a little bit smaller, more intimate and kind of a cool place to see a game. One of our key contacts at Carnegie Mellon University thought it would be funny to get the Pittsburgh Pirates mascot, the Pirate Parrot, to stop by our seats. And John, you you did not know this, but it was obviously a, a callback to what happened with Iceberg.
0: I was set up. Yes, I was
1: basically set up. And so here comes the Pirate Parrot. And, John, what did
0: you, after getting a picture with the pirate parrot, tell the pirate parrot? I told the pirate parrot, you are much nicer than that jerk Iceberg. (laughs) Now, we later learned, and I'm not going to go into great detail here and, and give away Pittsburgh secrets, but let's just say there is a tight bond between Iceberg and the Pirate Parrot that was. Una- I was unaware of. And the uh, Pirate Parrot got visibly angry and kind of threatened me. I I, 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 really was, I think it was a threat. Yes. I mean yes. – So, uh,
1: if I remember correctly, there were multiple gestures. One was opening – well, first off, the Pirate Parrot tried to kind of eat you with – the pirate parrot's beaks. Right. I I don't know the gender of the pirate parrot. No, neither do I. So it's, we can just say the pirate parrot tried to eat you with their beak and then walked, started to walk away and then turned around and kind of opened the beak so you could see inside and was clearly upset and then did two things, sort of pushed the eyes on the mascot costume forward so it was like, I'm watching you, you know, like, and like, it was terrifying. And then stomped and I know that mascots have their sticks yeah. and their routines. I wasn't so sure that this was one. <laughs> this,
0: this went over the edge, huh? Yeah, so I can get out of this town safely. I've got about 12 more hours here, don't, so wish
1: me luck. Don't worry. I'm calling you an Uber self-driving car right now. <laughs> that's It'll not going to help me. Years. Yeah, that's not getting me to the airport. No
0: <laughs> way. All right. Well, hey, this has been It's fun. been a really fun time. I mean, we love Pittsburgh. It's a great tech scene. Uh, the folks have this great Midwestern hospitality. I know people here don't like to consider themselves Midwest, but Pittsburgh's in this unique place at the cross-section of a lot of different cultures. And we just have always had a great time here. The tech scene is vibrant and interesting. Uh, there are a number of companies that we've been covering while we're here. Any other takeaways, Todd, that you've noticed on Pittsburgh compared to your last visit? This is not nearly as fun as the Pirate Parrots. Movie. No, Sorry. that's but, fine. You know, on, a note,
1: on a serious note you've got the Pittsburgh Robotics Network here that has really been revitalized since we were last here. And you can tell that there's a concerted effort to take Pittsburgh out of the realm of research and development in robotics and much further into the world of commercialization of the technology. And that to me is the big difference. Now, that's not to say there were not robotic startups before. There were many, uh, many of them spinning out of CMU, for example. But they are really trying to put some weight behind that effort and you can start to see
0: it bearing fruit yeah it's going to be interesting to watch hopefully they'll have us back i don't iceberg, know iceberg parrot no. and <laughs> all <laughs> let's find another mascot let's find another mascot that's to, right
1: who yeah, the steelers mascot we can we can work okay. on that okay <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> all right Thanks, everybody, for listening. Our podcast is produced and edited this week by me because Kurt Milton, our normal producer and editor, is off. So I take responsibility for all audio glitches this time around, if there are any. Our theme music is by Daniel L.K. Caldwell. A big thanks to Cascadia Capital for underwriting our trip and our independent coverage of robotics and AI here in Pittsburgh over the past two weeks. Be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter to catch all of our headlines. Until next time... I'm Todd Bishop. And I'm John Cook. See you in later. Thanks for listening to Geek Choir.